So that's good. I, I know that I workshopped one of my uh, long pieces one time, and one of the yeah. one of the instructors and, and uh, teachers said, uh, you know, she was talking about her, you know, writers really need to be honest, be true. And I'm like, well, what else would I be? And she says, no, your authentic self. You know, quit. You know, don't don't try to write like Hemingway or or Clemens or Stephen King. You know, uh, yeah. write write like you. You know, your authentic think, voice. Yes, and that voice, um, that voice takes some time to develop. It's almost like the singer needs to practice arpeggios, or someone who performs in other ways has to be able to work on their craft. So that's kind of how I got started. I, I got started writing blogs and during my uh, break between patients, you know, write a paragraph here and there. And uh, so that's really what got me going. Welcome to Quality Talk. That was Dr. Paul Pender talking with Quality Talk host Jody Jackson Jr. about their shared affinity for writing. Hi, I'm Adam Voigt, Multimedia Marketing Coordinator at Primaris Healthcare. Dr. Pender joins Jody for episode 70 in a discussion about the mounting pressures physicians face in the payment shift from volume to value. Warding off the digitization of the doctor-patient relationship is a significant factor in Dr. Pender's decision to retire after 38 years practicing clinical ophthalmology. Here's Jody and Dr. Pender with the rest of their conversation. This morning, Quality Talk is visiting with Dr. Paul Pender, uh, who practiced clinical ophthalmology for 38 years and uh, has retired um, and is has entered a second career in writing nonfiction. And uh, so as it, regular listeners of Quality Talk are going to recall that uh, I, I kind of seek out or am, am really kind of uh, attracted to um, guests who are not only physicians and healthcare professionals, but they are also writers, and not not just not not just a kind of a somebody who jots down a few notes, but some you know folks who can uh, really craft their words and uh, you know give meaning and and purpose and uh, instruction and uh, curiosity. And I don't know if that's uh, maybe. Uh, Overcomplicating me saying that Dr. Pender is an exceptional writer, and when I saw a couple of his pieces in uh, on KevinMD.com, which is really a treasure trove of information, um, you know, not just for professionals, but but for folks like me or people who are just really curious to know about what's going on in the medical world, especially in the shifting sands and uh, of uh, going from fee for service to value-based care. And so I'm just going to let Dr. Pender introduce himself, and we're going to get into a conversation about the shift uh, to value-based care. We're going to talk about uh, burdens and, and burnout that's going on, and, um, and then we're going to hear a little bit later on about Dr. Pender's uh, memoir that uh, we're hoping to see in print um, pretty soon. Dr. Pender, welcome to Quality Talk. Well, thank you, Jody. It's a pleasure to be part of your program. Uh, I just wanted to touch base uh, about how this transition of mine came about, and then we can get into more detail later. But uh, I, I was uh, feeling the, um, the, both the strength and the power of uh, webinars uh, when I was uh, 
nearing my retirement date and was working for the last few years with the American Academy of Ophthalmology on webinars for clinicians and residents and training on various topics. The most recent uh, one was on uh, reporting to reporting on uh, non-accidental trauma, what the ophthalmologist reporting requirements were. And I had guest speakers and I was the moderator and, and it was um, well, well attended. And I thought, well, this is a very interesting uh, forum. And I also decided, well, maybe I will, I will test the online uh, environment by forming a website uh, after I got encouragement at the Harvard Writers Course, and then um, began uh, creating a blog. And some of the um, some of the inspiration for doing that was uh, coming across a physician's uh, quote from a, a book on medical essays that were on all nonfiction. And I'd like to just quote it to start. So his name is Dr. Abraham Bergesi. I quote, I celebrate such writing and the impulse to write, the impulse to share some transformative incident that I am privileged to have witnessed. In my own writing, I often feel that I write in order to understand what I'm thinking. Mysteriously, insight comes when it does come. In the very act of writing, as if only by sitting with pen and pad can we snatch it out of the ether. And perhaps that's why I really decided to write, because I felt like it was a way of being able to better describe what I was thinking about. So I might be thinking about different news stories. I might be thinking about patients. I might be thinking about uh, how I have had mentors inspire me in my work as a physician. So all this sort of came together after I attended this Harvard Writers course the first year. And by the second year, I was really eager to uh, present my idea for my memoir to a larger group, including uh, course participants and a panel of agents uh, and publishers. So that's really bringing you up to speed as to where my writing career is at this point. And we can move on to other issues if you'd like. Well, let, yeah, we'll come back to that in a moment because I've got a couple of uh, comments or questions there. Uh, I just want to maybe just get into this, uh, the, the blog that you wrote. Uh, the title is Some Doctors Are Losers in This Zero-Sum Game. And uh, you, you, you referenced the American Medical Association and interest groups and uh, even some politicians who, uh, who, who weigh physician time with the patient in the calculation of any encounter to better compensate primary care physicians. And I know uh, this is probably, and, and I'm certainly not a doctor, and I, but I've talked to plenty of folks in the medical healthcare field that probably the number one uh, complaint or comment is that uh, electronic record keeping and electronic uh, health records uh, really uh, the, the the burden on the physician is that we don't have real early enough face time with our patients and patients often uh, their satisfaction is uh, dampened by uh, the response that well my doctor looked at the uh, the screen more than he looked at me and 
I don't know where all of this is going and if it's going to be lessened any at all. Uh, I'd like to maybe frame the, the conversation, though, in uh, that it does seem like this is the new normal. The new reality is that uh, because of all of the quality measures that must be uh, uh, abstracted of the data and then reported and, uh, you know, let's multiply that by a hundred of, of other little uh, nuances and uh, things that are in place. Uh, the the uh, shift from fee-for-service to value-based care uh, doesn't seem like it's, it's going to go away. Uh, so can we just kind of start from there? What what are What's the good and bad uh, or maybe what if you could just talk about the positive uh, of this this change in uh, reimbursement uh, or is, is there any good to it? Sure, I think um, I'm going to refer to some of the notes that I I've, uh, prepared before we uh, started this conversation because I think it, it's important. Um, the reason why I wrote this this piece about the zero-sum game is that although the um, the goal of compensating doctors uh, for added time for their patients is a noble one, uh, but the budget for paying doctors is basically fixed. So any economic enhancement for one group comes at the expense of another. And so I go into more detail about how surgeons uh, may be more greatly impacted. But I think the general uh, feeling that you brought out from the patient's point of view is that I want the doctor to pay attention to me and not the computer screen. And to, to that end, I decided at my own expense, I was going to hire a scribe who would essentially take dictations during my exam for findings and then allowing me to uh, move my equipment out of the way, look the patient in the eye, hold their hand, and say, okay, now in plain English, here's what I think is going on and what I plan to do about it. So I had in the background a very wonderful helper who was discreet and the patients were certainly uh, fine with uh, the privacy uh, of this situation where my quality indicators and all the other aspects of documentation of the visit were going to be essentially done as I was sitting there describing to the patient what was going on and what I planned to do. So I could, I could essentially keep high contact with the patient, and even if it's for a fairly short exam, they really felt like that I had their attention and they had mine. So I, I think that the, the requirements now for being able to document uh, an exam in order to be paid are becoming more and more complicated. In fact, I think if your audience would be willing to indulge me, I, I want to go through a couple other notes. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the, yeah, the acronyms that we physicians encounter in our attempts to comply with federal policies for quality reporting are as numerous as the agencies in the government itself. An entire, gloss, an entire glossary was created by our specialty society just to understand what these acronyms stand for and their implications for the practice of medicine. 
if you participate in Medicare as a doctor, meeting the requirements come with both carrots and sticks. A brief history lesson is in order. So when our compensation formula through the federal government for Medicare and Medicaid was um, revised in order to uh, bring value more into the equation rather than just uh, volume. Uh, this uh, program called the Merit-Based Incentive Payment System, or MIPS as one of the acronyms, was developed. And so it replaced several of the existing Medicare quality improvement programs and combined them into one program beginning in 2017. And the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services finalized its 2018 rule for the new system the year before. And under this 2015 law that repealed what was called a sustainable growth rate, the MIPS program would combine the Physician Quality Reporting System, another acronym, PQRS, and Meaningful Use and the value-based modifier. I won't get into all the detail with those particular items, but suffice to say, we were going to be graded on the basis of what we submitted for any exam. That included the four areas of one, quality reporting, two, promoting interoperability, three, improvement activities, and four, costs. So, the, the feds were going to score physicians for each category and compare each doctor's total composite score to a national benchmark. And physicians could earn a bonus or a penalty based upon their performance. But just in order to fill out all of the boxes and to be able to uh, make sure that you had met all the criteria, this required so much additional time on the part of physicians that it created a lot of resentment. It was uh, termed in some ways pajama time because often doctors would bring their work home and do it at the late, latest hour in their pajamas before they could actually start their next work day. So the burden that's been placed on physicians has continuing uh, in complexity. And not only has the bar been raised for how we're going to be graded, but I would say the goalposts have also been moved because some of the quality reporting initiatives will make us top out or, or not get any more points if the vast majority of people submitting the data are already doing that. So <laughs> they have to keep inventing new quality measures to be able to find new ways to improve. And the... The bottom line for physicians uh, really is that with all the additional demands that are placed on physicians to meet these requirements in order to be uh, compensated appropriately, it's caused a lot of stress. And if I go back to one of the, I consider seminal articles was by Charles Krauthammer in, in the Washington Post. Uh, several years ago, uh, and the late author basically described why doctors quit. And basically it came down to being forced to do so many different things that they weren't allowing enough time for their patients.
patients, and that they were they were given responsibility without the autonomy to treat the patients as they see in their patient's best interest. Sure. Well, and you know what you've you've done here is provide such a great concise history of uh, the move from the sustainable growth rate formula to uh, MIPS. And uh, you mentioned PQRS, meaningful use, value-based medicine, and the uh, the incredible number, the, the plethora of uh, acronyms out there. And in what was really telling to me was that uh, the societies and the uh, associations that you work with and that other physicians work with, they kind of develop their own uh, acronyms and, and glossaries just to explain those things here at Primaris. Uh, we've been involved in, uh, uh, you know, we were we were uh, kind of pioneers in quality reporting, uh, joining the, jo- the Joint Commission in 1999 for the first uh, foray into core measures. And so the quality payment program that has come along, uh, MACRA and MIPS, we, we call that the alphabet soup of, uh, of MACRA and MIPS or the value uh, alphabet soup of, of value-based care. And... Uh, you know, you described uh, the, the four peaks of Mount MIPS there, uh, you know, promoting interoperability, cost, uh, quality, and um, improvement activities. And just, that was a great uh, summation of those things and where and exactly how this is affecting uh, physicians, not only physicians, but ultimately patients. And you mentioned earlier that you uh, had actually brought a scribe on board to uh, do a lot of that documentation, uh, that was a, a a way to resolve the issue of FaceTime with patients, but that also created an additional cost for you, didn't it? Yes, it did. But I I felt like as long as my scribe was doing the work uh, appropriately and accurately, it freed me to do what I really was trained to do, and that is to take care of the patients. Sure. So. You know, getting back to the MIPS uh, program and what your company, uh, Primaris, has been doing, uh, one of the implications of, of this program as it continues to mature is that there's going to be an increased uh, emphasis on, on how you're graded by cost. And the problem that I see here is that when physicians, let's say a cataract surgeon, is, is going to do an operation on someone's uh, cloudy vision uh, due to their cloudy lens, uh, there's a certain expectation on the part of both the surgeon and the patient that things are going to go well and that they'll have adequate vision to meet their daily uh, living requirements. But if the doctor should happen to operate on a patient who has comorbidities, for example, macular degeneration or glaucoma or diabetic retinopathy, and they're unable to meet the criteria for quality, let's say 2040 or better vision, let's say uh, vision requirements for driving in most states, then they're going to be penalized. And that's because there's really a very poor mechanism for risk adjustment for these comorbidities. And so what is the implication for the doctor then? Well, it may be more lucrative to just refer out those patients who have 
these other problems and to just essentially cherry pick the easiest cases. This is going to this is going to create um, greater burdens on the referral centers, academic institutions, and and uh, large urban areas where they're going to be taking on the toughest cases, and it may dislocate patients from their their own physician locally. So I think until the feds figure out how to risk adjust for comorbidities, some of these quality measures that are involving cost are not going to be uh, fairly distributed, let me just say. So I, I think uh, looking at the academy's uh, points here on the, the costs growing role in this. Uh, this year, your cost score is weighted at 15% of your total score, up from 10% in 2018. And starting in 2022, uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid is required by statute to weight the weight cost at 30% of your final score. So in the future, there's going to be fewer bonuses and and more sticks applied to uh, physicians as they go through this uh, incentive payment system. Well, we produced an ebook two years ago called uh, uh, "Conquering Mount Mips" or uh, how you know summiting Mount Mips. And at that time, when we presented those four peaks of the mountain, you know, cost was one of them. But at that time. It would have had a zero percent impact on the total, you know, over, overall score. So I think we just kind of said, "Hey, uh, it's it's out there. It's still kind of hidden in the clouds, but it's coming." And I think you just described very succinctly how uh, that has the the arrival has has a lot of folks uh, in uh, in healthcare sort of on the uh, on, on alert on the edge of their seats. Uh, Doctor Pinder, you wrote in the uh, your your post about doctors being losers and some some doctors being losers in the zero sum game, you you wrap that one up by saying um, with the coming changes, many doctors will lick their wounds and continue to practice medicine, while others will elect to become non-participating doctors in Medicare and Medicaid. Some will simply quit practice altogether. Saying goodbye to my patients, my staff, and fellow physicians was difficult for me. But looking ahead makes me realize that it was a timely decision indeed. So how much uh, weight did uh, the the ocean of acronyms here have on your decision to ultimately say goodbye? Uh, let's put it this way. Um, <laughs> if, I, if I didn't have the scribe, I would have quit years before. I, I think it was uh, not about... <clears throat> about the, the actual practice of medicine, but it was about meeting compliance and other requirements that really drove me crazy. And, you know, I at the, at the time I retired, I was 68 years old, and some of my peers and partners were certainly uh, very much more adept at using the computer and entering things that, than I was. But even as I read... Um, online, some of the other consulting uh, firms that are out there trying to help doctors. Um, some of the opinions of these people 
uh, include things like, well, scribes were probably only a temporary benefit. And once doctors get a better handle on the system, they'll be better able to, to utilize it. Mm -hmm. I don't believe that. I think having the scribe really got me through a very difficult period professionally trying to uh, use the computer, adapt to our software system, and and still be able to look the patient in the eye and and provide what I thought was appropriate um, guidance. So, yeah, I think um, I'm not the only one who's experienced this distress. And I, I wrote about burdens and burnout because a lot of doctors feel cornered, boxed in by their desire to continue serving their patients, yet unable to lighten the administrative burdens of modern medical practice. So uh, part of this whole writing catharsis for me has been dealing with how this, this has impacted my career as well as the patients. And I think it would have been much harder to continue practicing in an environment where I didn't have someone who could record my, my findings and to enter the necessary data. I appreciate that uh, honesty in your response. I know that when uh, when Macron MIPS was still kind of in its infancy, quality payment program, and um, I I remember going meeting with my primary care doc, and I asked her, you know, at the end of the exam, she says, "Do you have any questions?" And I said, "Yeah, what do you think of Macra and MIPS?" And uh, well, she said initially it had added six hours to her day. Uh, to do all of the uh, documentation and, and so on. And, That's a uh, lot of pajama time, Jody. What's that? That's a lot of pajama time. Yeah, yeah. And, and she talked about how it took away from her own family. And, um, you know, she, she tried to uh, kind of say it all very gently, um, par partly because maybe at the time... I worked for the local newspaper, and I was a healthcare reporter, and maybe she was, uh, uh, you know, concerned she'd be quoted, but uh, I didn't do that to folks, and I'm kind of just really kidding there because uh, she's she's a very good doctor. Uh, Dr. Pinder, I'm going to take a moment here to remind our listeners they're listening to Quality Talk, a podcast dedicated to advancing a better understanding of healthcare. And um, this podcast is presented by Primaris, which is a healthcare uh, consultant and quality improvement specialist. And um, Primaris, uh, kind of our sweet spot uh, in the health uh, industry, is uh, data and chart abstraction uh, to help uh, physicians and clinics, ACOs, health systems, and hospitals meet uh, and. Um, these these new uh, reporting uh, standards and, and measures. We deal with core measures, uh, registries, and uh, one of the six MIPS reporting methods is the CMS web interface. And um, that's something that Primaris does exceptionally well with a, a high uh, accuracy rating of uh, often between over 95%. Uh, we are talking today with Paul Pinder who practiced clinical ophthalmology for 38 years, specializing in the medical and surgical treatment of eye diseases. Dr. Pinder is a graduate of Harvard College and completed his residency at the world-renowned Wills Eye Hospital. 
During his practice years, he innovated procedures in the subspecialty of refractive surgery, allowing his patients to see clearly without glasses. The New England Ophthalmological Society honors Dr. Pender with a lecture series in his name, given biannually by a leading surgeon in the field of cataract and refractive surgery. And you'll be able to find more uh, information about Dr. Pender's uh, biography and uh, his background, as well as links to his articles and the blogs we're talking about. Uh, you will see those uh, in the show notes for this episode. Uh, you'll find that at, uh, at Primaris.org under the podcast tab, and that's where you'll find the show notes that will include the, uh, the audio for this episode as well. And uh, Dr. Pender blogs regularly on timely medical issues on his website at www.paulpendermd.com and on LinkedIn. His essays on Kevin MD have commanded the attention of patients and professionals alike. And Dr. Pender's memoir, Making Lives Better, How How Mentors and Patients Inspired a Doctor's Work, reflects his gratitude and warmth toward his patients and those who supported his professional journey. And uh, Dr. Pender concludes his bio by saying he and his wife divide their time between New Hampshire and California, taking their Cavalier Spaniel wherever they go. And Dr. Pender, I once wrote a uh, news article about a, uh, a ho- an apartment fire that had displaced some people, and I had interviewed a couple that was standing there with their little dog. And I mentioned the dog in the article, but then the editor shouted across the room at me. He said, what kind of dog and what's its name? And so uh, I, I always, from then on, made sure to find out not only what kind of dog, but uh, Dr. Pender, what is your Cavalier Spaniel's name? Okay. Uh, he's, he's a Cavalier Spaniel with the name of Freddie, and he happens to be my therapy dog. Uh, all the stuff that we've been talking about, burdens and burnout and and losers in the in the uh, zero-sum game of, um, of dividing the pie for uh, compensating physicians. All this stuff is fairly depressing. But I just want to touch base on, on a couple of things. One is just that, you know, your company is, is there to help massage the data and to help practices and hospitals better meet these uh, demands. But someone has to still enter the data. And when the doctors are now having to do clerical work, it drives them crazy. So I want to just um, quote from this blog of mine on burdens and burnout, that part of the symptom complex of burnout for doctors includes feelings of helplessness in a profession designed to help. When it seems like we are stymied in doing what we do best, that is taking care of patients, either because of time constraints or administrative demands, doctors begin to question why they stay in the field. They wonder if all the sacrifice of time and sleep and the hundreds of hours of training have really been worth it. Pride of purpose is eroded by the grind of the insignificant, and doctors feel like they are drowning in a sea of minutiae dictated by outside forces. So, how do we deal with this? Well, my own way of dealing with it was accept it, um, try to get the best score I could on all my performance measures, and make sure that when I left the office for the day, all of my notes were up to date 
and I didn't have to bring anything else home. And that was an important way for me to, to cope. I did not want to have to extend my workday six hours like your primary care physician did. And I, I really felt like um, not just stroking my spaniel, but basically having some time to breathe on my own was really important. So uh, some of these changes to policy have added administrative requirements and added stress to doctors who are already working added hours to enter data and to fight with insurance companies for authorization for medications and procedures their patients require. So I think that you're absolutely right. It's only going to continue to be to increase in its complexity and how we cope with this is is really is really going to take um, a major change I believe and um, it's not going to be the band-aid approach for preaching mindfulness or hiring a wellness officer at the hospital it's really about what you have to do to improve conditions for physicians and mental health and doctors have to speak up on behalf of their patients and on their own state of health in a system with increasing demand. You know, we've talked uh, on this podcast too with uh, physicians and um, healthcare professionals who uh, have, have expressed some of those very uh, concerns that, that you have, uh, saying, okay, this is the reality, this is the new normal. So, what can we do now to uh, maybe alleviate or lessen this this load? And you know, it seems like occasionally CMS, uh, you know, has is listening. And um, I don't I don't know. We we talk with a lot of cardiologists too, who say you know uh, they they don't they didn't get into this to do clerical work. They did this right. they got into this to have. Uh, not not patient facing time uh, as a, uh, a a qualitative score, but as just a, a matter of practice. You know, it's what they do, and um, so I I think we're all pretty eager, curious to see, maybe nervous to see how this is going to play out. We've we've talked to physicians and folks who've had experience in the uh, national health system in uh, the UK, for instance, or even. Um, the uh, public health system in Australia. And the, when I get a chance to ask them, I always say, well, you know, compare that to, um, you know, what we've got going on here. And uh, the, one of the, the common responses we get is that uh, UK especially, uh, they their demands aren't, as stringent it's not as complex and there is more uh, face and eye-to-eye time with patients Um, you know but even with that you know the the physicians that we've talked with when regardless of the specialty uh, you know and I I couldn't list them all right now but it's it's a pretty extensive list their response is you know United States all in all still has the best healthcare system, although a lot of times it's a sick care system because we don't do as good as uh, maybe European countries as keeping people well. But if you're sick, you know, by golly, we, you know, you have a chronic condition, 
we're, we're going to really take good care of you. Um, so a lot of it is that preventative part that uh, they feel like is lacking. What's your, uh, as you listen to me kind of garble that out, what, what's your response? Okay, well, I think um, it, my response would be in two parts. The first is I think our, our healthcare system is still the best in the world. I really believe that. I've looked at other systems. I've spent time in uh, Great Britain, for example, and I'm, one of my friends from um, Toronto told me that because each, I guess, each uh, province has its own healthcare budget, uh, the doctors, when their budget is exhausted, close their office. And they may close after six, eight months of practice and then just say, well, the provisional government cannot uh, cover my costs anymore, so I'm just going to close my office. That, to me, is a real mistake in public policy. But the other thing that I want to mention is that uh, when we say how are, how are doctors going to be able to meet these demands that are going to be placed on them, and one answer uh, to the goal of bringing value to physician performance and meeting quality standards uh, comes from the integration of individual doctors' data with a national registry. And the American Academy of Ophthalmology developed the IRIS registry, that it stands, another acronym, it stands for Intelligent Research and Sight. And it's offered over 50 million patients. And I'm sorry, uh, there are at least uh, 250 million exams that have been um, recorded in this registry to be able to track illnesses, to be able to help researchers uh, design studies to uh, look at what might help improve health. And so this particular national registry is something that's been qualified by the feds to be used for quality reporting. And I think, at least in our specialty of ophthalmology, uh, using the Academy's uh, IRIS registry may allow them to um, at least feed their data into uh, the registry to be able to meet the federal, uh, the federal standards. Uh, I think that uh, coping with all these challenges is not going to be easy, but uh, part of my decision to start writing is to have that catharsis of being able to describe how these um, different pressures affect physicians. And uh, if you don't mind my segueing to some of this business about the writing, I'd like to do that. No, absolutely. Let's uh, what, maybe take this opportunity to uh, uh, maybe start uh, winding down. Actually, I'm just going to kind of uh, give you the floor and if you'd share your uh, any additional thoughts you have with our listeners, and, and I just want to really appreciate your uh, your participation, your willingness to be a guest on Quality Talk. Um, you know, a lot of times we talk with physicians. Uh, I mentioned cardiologists, and probably we don't we don't talk to enough specialists. You know, because when we think of a lot of times when the public thinks of of health and medicine, they think of the doctor they see, or they think of the the primary care doc. And, um, you know, so many uh, 
specialties uh, out there that uh, obviously we wouldn't stay well or get well uh, if it wasn't for that entire uh, breadth of service that's out there. So I thank you first for your service and for uh, the years and the, the, the patients that you had a positive uh, impact on. And thanks for being a, a guest with us. So I'll, uh, I'll let you kind of take it from here. Well, thanks, Jody. And again, it's been a, a pleasure to be part of this conversation uh, for Quality Talk. You know, I, uh, I came across uh, a book by uh, William Zinzer after I attended the Harvard Writers Conference uh, on writing well. I figured, go to the experts if I really wanted to try to take this up uh, as a second career. And one of the passages really uh, hit home. Uh, and according to Zinzer, memoir writing is an important kind of writing. Memories too often die with their owner, and time too often surprises us by running out. Well, I decided it was, it was probably a good idea at age 68 to start writing my memoir, because who knows how many more years I had left. So I, I took up this project with um, one of the guest speakers, on the faculty at the Harvard Writers Conference who helped edit what I was writing. And I completed my memoir, Making Lives Better, How Mentors and Patients Inspired a Doctor's Work. And it really has to do with vision, uh, eye care, but it's really about patients themselves. And so it's now before a, an acquisitions editor, and I'm waiting to hear uh, the next, um, the next uh, notice. So Making Lives Better is based on my career in ophthalmology spanning 38 years. It is written for adult readers of narrative nonfiction, especially those wanting an insider's look at what it takes to become a physician. The book is divided into three parts. Part one, The Quest, describes how I reconnect with a mentor after an unexpected phone call. And during my long drive to visit this mentor in my uh, adult years as a physician, I reflect on his profound influence on me many years ago to help make lives better. As his physician in residence, I assist him with his terminal illness in last days. Part two, professional journey takes readers through my college experience, working with a mental patient, the rigors of a medical education, the challenges faced by patients, and the decisions made to improve their lives. Part three, denouement the influences that led to my decision to retire from medicine and the effect of that announcement on my patients and staff. Saying goodbye to so many people who have trusted me for many years was not easy for them or for me. Reflecting on individual patients as, quote, impact players, end quote, I wind down my responsibilities and refer to my partners in ophthalmology practice, the many patients who had inspired me with their warmth humility, determination, and humor. And to close, Jody, I'll say, I'll never forget the quip made by a patient facing eye surgery. Doc, don't worry about me. I have a high tolerance for pain. I attended parochial schools. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and we laugh. And that, that's great medicine, isn't it? Oh, it is. I, you know, and that's, that's kind of what kept me going is 
these patients had so many great stories and I wanted to share them with a larger audience. So that's the reason why I decided to write this memoir. Well, and we will keep uh, listeners uh, up to date on uh, the progress of uh, hopefully soon publication of your memoir. Dr. Pender, thank you for joining me for this episode of Quality Talk. My pleasure. This has been Quality Talk, a podcast from Primaris Healthcare, your partner in healthcare quality. Just remember, Primaris takes care of your clinical data so you can take care of what matters most, your patients. Goodbye for now. Hi, Adam again. That's a wrap on episode 70. Our thanks to Dr. Pender for his time and thoughtful conversation. As Jody said, you can find show notes for this episode under the podcast tab on our website, www.primaris.org. You can also email the host, jjackson at primaris.org. We look forward to sharing another episode with you soon.